Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Today on World Footprints, we'll go on some great adventures with remarkable adventurers. And we'll prepare for a historic milestone, the centennial of Japan's gift of cherry blossoms to the United States. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to World Footprints, your leading voice in socially conscious and responsible lifestyle and travel. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we encourage you to buckle up and prepare for today's adventure. For National Geographic Adventure Magazine editor and web producer Marianne Potts, adventure travel is part of her DNA. As you'll hear, she's always tapped into the newest adventure travel trends and latest gear. Really about outdoor gear is highly technical and it's really incredibly engineered to keep you warm and dry and comfortable. And of course, the key to being outside is to think that all kinds of weather are good, whether it's raining or snowing. Richard Weiss has been called the modern-day Indiana Jones, and this host of ABC's program, Born to Explore has done everything from tagging jaguars in the Yucatan jungles to discovering new life forms on Mount Kilimanjaro. Nearly 100 years ago, the United States received a gift of 3,000 cherry blossom trees from the people of Japan. Diana Mayhew, president of the National Cherry Blossom Festival, says that the festival is planning a five-week spectacular to commemorate this centennial. The festival, as you said, opens March 20th, which is the first day of spring, with our Pink Tie Party. Pink Tie Party has become our signature event. It's actually a big fundraiser for the festival. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Marianne Potts has worked in the adventure travel editorial space for more than 11 years. She started off on the editorial staff of National Geographic Adventure magazine in 2001 and has moved up the ranks from there. She has run the magazine's website and also launched its social media presence. Marianne continues to run Adventure as a standalone digital brand for National Geographic, and it includes her National Geographic Adventure blog, which Outdoor Magazine recognized as the number three best adventure travel blogs within its top ten list. Marianne, congratulations on the recognition of your blog. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, major kudos to you. Now, I'm just curious, considering your long history with Na- National Geographic, um, is adventure travel just part of your DNA, or is this something that you stumbled upon? Uh, for me personally, well, I mean, first of all, I would say for National Geographic, it actually, we really think of adventure as part of our DNA. That's something we say all the time. Um, the society has been around since 1888 and sending people to the most adventurous parts of the world. So certainly for National Geographic, it's part of the DNA. For myself, you know, um, I've always been an avid traveler and uh, really loved the outdoors. But I have, to, I have to admit, though, that I've gotten more adventurous over the years. really um, a contagious subject matter to cover. Um, I wasn't a skier before I started working for um, Adventure, and now now I am. I picked up a lot of great things, and I guess um, that's what we really want people to know, is it's not about um, needing to go like base jumping or doing something extreme. It's really about having a genuine adventure of your own and getting outside of your comfort zone and enjoying the great outdoors, trying new things, um, whether it's hiking or camping. It, and uh, we, can all, we can all become more adventurous um, step by step. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and adventure travel is is so broadly defined. I mean, we you know, I was talking to um, one of our mutual friends, and you know, he said adventure travel, bird watching, can be classified as adventure travel. It's just what you know you accept as adventure what you know within your your comfort zone or even on the outskirt of your comfort zone when you're doing something new that brings you a lot of you know brings you joy allows you to experience new things and you know that's an adventure in and of itself oh i totally agree and um we really think it's important for people to have a connection to nature and the outdoors and um adventure really is a way to do that and it, it can be taking a walk in your park it can be you know, hopping on a bicycle after years of not doing that, or it can be something as extreme as, you know, um, heading into the backcountry at your local ski resort with a guide. But what we know is that adventure really helps us have a greater understanding of ourselves and have a greater appreciation for the outdoors. So we think it's really a meaningful thing for people to explore. Mm-hmm. I'd like to step back a little bit, um, going back to your blog, and talk about some of the your blog assets. Um, you publish yeah. a feature a biannually um, entitled Gear of the Year. What is that feature, and how do you su- select sure. the, um, the entries? Definitely. Well, so just to kind of clarify, we have the blog is part of our National Geographic Adventure website. Um, so we have the blog, and then in addition we have our sort of home site, our core site, that features um, the majority of our content. So the Gear of the Year actually lives on our, on our home site, but it's a, a long-standing feature that we do f- with the Adventure brand. Um, you know, as you probably know, outdoor gear is highly technical, and it's really incredibly engineered to keep you warm and dry and comfortable. And, of course, the key to being outside is to think that all kinds of weather are good, whether it's raining or snowing. So we really try to find that gear that helps you have a better experience outdoors. And also look at those products that are pushing the technology envelope. So you know, are, do they function better? Are they are they designed to make you actually be a better um, skier or, or runner or whatever it is that you're doing? Um, and are they helping to keep you safe? So we work with Steve Casimiro, who is our West Coast editor, and he has probably like 30 years of experience testing gear. He tests everything to make sure that these products really live up to um, what they claim to do. And so twice a year, so we do it seasonally. We have a spring-summer collection and then a fall-winter collection. We look at what are those products that are really standouts that will help you have a great experience in the outdoors. Mm -hmm. So you guys do actually review these these products yourself, or Steve does for you. Definitely, and that makes it a little time-consuming to do, but it's important to actually, you know, put on the jacket, try out the um, watch, make sure that it isn't, you know, too hard to use or, you know, just make sure that everything is how it should be so that we really present the best products. So so how do you go about selecting the gear that you're going to feature? Are price points a consideration, um, functionality, all of the above? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, functionality, we want to look at gear that's innovative. It also helps educate our audience in terms of what to expect out of your gear. I mean, I think the day of wearing a cotton T-shirt on your run is, you know, Hopefully, most people are wearing something a little more comfortable than that. But we want to help people know what's out there to help them really have a great experience. Uh, We want to present a a variety of price ranges, but we also won't um, not cover something if it's a little pricey in the spirit of showing people what's available and really how 
this industry is continuing to improve itself. So let's talk about some of the, the items that you identified as your, your favorites. And I'm looking at the price points, and it, you know, it goes from as low as $78 for the Levi's Commuter Series. I have no idea what that is. Um, all, the <laughs> way, <laughs> all the way up to $720 for an Avalanche pack. Um, sure. So talk about some of the things that, that you identified as favorites and, and what, uh, what resonated with you. Uh, with these particular yeah. products. One of my favorites that's not on this list is um, this Clean Canteen Reflect Water Bottle, that stainless steel. It's a great eco story because you want to bring it everywhere to not have to buy a bottle of water and keep hydrated. I, I think of it as like the iPhone of water bottles because it's kind of it's cool to have it. People comment on it. You feel like, you know, it's something you want to take with you and uh, it's also super functional and green at the same time so yeah that's and that sells for $33 you can definitely slide that into somebody's stocking who you love but some of the things that I think are really interesting are things that um, really are responding to trends within the outdoor industry and what people are doing so for example bike commuting bike commuting is really growing people care about you know both being active and having a a lesser carbon footprint so some of our gear of the year really speaks to that Um, and it's really great to see the industry is helping people do bike commuting better. So for example, yes, those Levi's um, jeans. Now these are, okay, so you're riding your bike. Sometimes there's great distances you need to cover, but um, you probably don't want to show up to work or to meet your friends wearing Lycra or something like that. Now these jeans kind of blend the two. So you, they're stretchy, they have, but they also have a little bit of reflective piping so that you're um, going to have better visibility when you're riding among cars. They also have a special coating that helps them be dirt and odor resistant. So that's just great because, you know, it helps you make, it, it makes it easier for you to ride at your bike places, which is something we can all appreciate. Um, there's also this great hip lock, um, bike lock, and I'm sure we've all seen uh, those guys riding around with the big chains strapped around their chest. This helps you have an easier way to do that. It's actually like a belt. Um, it's an 8-millimeter wide um, steel chain wrapped in nylon. You can wear it, and it comes in really fun colors. So in terms of gifts, really it would be really great to help your, your favorite bike commuter uh, have a better locking experience. And, um, and, and all of these things are, are um uh, showcased on the website with photographs and what have you. I mean, had I looked at it first, I would have known that Levi's, you w- were referring to jeans. <laughs> not sure. Yeah, well, uh, I think it's, it's surprising that a company like Levi's is actually responding to something like bike commuting. You know, Levi's has been around forever, but they're actually, you know, helping people have a better experience on their bikes as well, which is great for all of us. Uh, but yeah, and you can, we do have photos and, and in-depth reviews of all these products on our website. We also have a holiday gear um, guide. So if you uh, you want to find some gifts, you can look there as well. And that actually has a huge range of price points. And, um, and, and you have um, uh, a tech gadget, um, the uh, InReach Satellite Communicator. You know, we talked to, you talked a little bit about uh, technology, uh, really the proliferation of technology um, for outdoor gear. Tell us about that particular item. Yeah, so um, the DeLorme InReach Satellite Communicator has really made a splash this year. Um, what's remarkable about it is actually traditionally you've only been able to send out messages. So from a safety level, that's important. You know, of course, you want if you're going out into the wilderness, even if you're just hiking, it's, it's important to be able to get your, um, hey, I'm fine, or, oh, you know, I'm lost, whatever that message might be. But now this communicator actually can receive messages as well, so kind of like the smoke signal but on a tech level. So you can see the response that somebody knows got your message, and if you happen to be in a bind, that's a really important thing. Of course, this is great for somebody who's um, a true explorer going into a jungle or wherever. There isn't cell phone communication, but even if you're just, you know, in your car and in an area that doesn't have 
cell phone coverage, um, this is an, another way to do it. Um, if you're hiking, it also has built-in maps um, so that mm. you can use it to, for your navigation. And uh, we've met countless adventurers and explorers who are really excited to have this improvement. Um, so we're really excited about it as well. I want to talk about another um, exciting feature, something that's going on now um, on the uh, on the website, the National Geographic Adventurers of the Year Award. What is that award, and how does one qualify for consideration? Great, yeah. So the Adventures of the Year program has been around for seven years. This is our seventh year of doing it, and it's one of the most exciting features we do on nationalgeographic.com. We really spend the whole year looking at what people are doing in the adventure industry and and what are the most uh, inspiring accomplishments there? Who are the people who have the greatest spirit of adventure? So we're looking for pioneers, and this can in- include anything from traditional sports like hiking, snowboarding. Well, that's not exactly traditional, but, you know, adventure sports such as hiking, snowboarding, surfing, skiing, biking. But we also look for people who dream up, you know, an expedition that is a first of its own or, you know, something that's creative and uh, really pushes the envelope of what has been done. And we also look for people who just, you know, are celebrating the outdoors and challenging themselves to have have a great experience in it. Now, with that, we um, also have a People's Choice Award, and so we have found these 10 individuals who we think are amazing, and we leave it to our audience to vote for the People's Choice. You can vote every day for your favorite. If you go to ngadventure.com, uh, you'll see all 10 people. You can read about them, see photos. The photos are amazing. Um, they're really spectacular, and uh, you can vote every day for your favorite, and uh, or you can vote every day for a different person if you kind of like a selection, and you probably will. <laughs> they're quite uh, they're quite dynamic people. Yeah, I'm just sitting here uh, reading a couple of um, uh, bios or talking points that, that I have on some of the people, uh, Carissa yeah. Moore, um, mm-hmm. who sounds just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, of course, you know, having uh, been in Hawaii, uh, which is a, a state that uh, really resonates with, with us, uh, I was very attracted to uh, to her. But um, tell us about her her dream of becoming the world's best surfer and what, how she ended up on this list. Definitely. Well, so, yeah, Carissa Moore is, is really remarkable. She's only 19 years old, and she is the current world champion uh, women's surfer. She's also the youngest world champion surfer ever. And uh, she grew up in Hawaii, and her dad was her coach. She started surfing when she was a little kid, and uh, I... I actually interviewed her, and she has this amazing connection to the ocean that probably, as someone growing up in Hawaii, really would have. And, um, you know, when you ask me the question, what, did you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, when I, People generally have a kind of wide range of responses that are maybe a little outlandish. But Chris was like, you know, I always dreamed of being the world's best surfer. And honestly, <laughs> as a, yeah, I know, as a, as a 19-year-old who's already the world champion women's surfer, and she also this year received two wild cards to surf with the world's best men at the end of the season in her home state of Hawaii. Um, you know, there's a great chance that she's on her way to achieving that dream. And um, her surfing has been compared to Kelly Slater, who's, of course, the 11-time world champion. And uh, she's a great role model, model for women and really breaking new ground in her sport and we really wanted to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. And Alistair Humphreys is, um, he, he's the type of, you know, you mentioned kind of the backyard adventure uh, travelers, yeah. and, and um, he's actually one of those the, those individuals that you were uh, referring to a little bit earlier. Tell, tell us a little bit about yeah. him. Alistair is really interesting because he is really making a point to show people that adventure is accessible, that it's really it's not about climbing Everest, it's about having a genuine adventure for yourself. 
Um, he himself is a seasoned world traveler. He spent four years pedaling 46,000 miles around the world. He's done glacier traverses. He's totally a seasoned adventurer himself. But last, or for 2011, he decided to stay in his home uh, UK and only uh, find adventures close to home. So the concept he created was micro-adventures, and the idea is these are small local trips that begin and, begin and end at your doorstep, uh, which we think is wonderful, this idea that you don't have to think adventure is for other people, but adventure is for all of us. Now, voting goes until uh, January 18th, and people can vote online um, yes. in every day. They, they every day, yeah. Um, so what's interesting about that is, I, well, I cannot reveal who's in the lead. I can tell you that um, it keeps changing, and it's really interesting to see how things ebb and flow. So it's really um, anyone's race to win, and we think that you can help influence who wins by, you know, reading up, seeing, seeing who really resonates with you, and then um, helping to support him or her and voting every day <laughs> for mm-hmm. your favorite. In, in the few minutes that we have left, I also wanted to ask you quickly about a committee that you're involved with. Um, you're a voting member of the National Geographic Young Explorers Grant Committee. What is that yeah. committee, and, and, and talk about the application process for that. Definitely. So this is a program that started in 2007 for National Geographic, and the idea was really to help find and nurture the next generation of explorers. The grants are for people aged um, 18 to 25, and you can get up to $5,000 as a seed grant toward uh, an expedition that you uh, dream up. And what's really wonderful about it is once people get the grant, they really are um, connected into the network of National Geographic Explorers. So let's say a young explorer gets funded to go to Siberia, and we have an explorer who spent a great deal of time in that area. They're able to actually, you know, be mentored by the explorer and uh, get some insight into what it's like to be there and how to better communicate their story. So far, there have been 176 grants given, and that's nearly $800,000, so um, pretty pretty great. And um, there's also a series of uh, campus workshops that are expanding every year where students can go and, and learn about the process, uh, which involves um, filling out an application, and uh, it's fairly, fairly involved. I mean, we really want to make sure that people aren't just dreaming up something that is outside of their skill level and uh, educational background. So, I mean, that's another part why we have great advisors is to make sure that we're not sending young people places that um, are too dangerous, but we really want to bring these next generation explorers out and help them sort of reshape storytelling in creative ways. And um, I can give an example of one, if you like, if we have time. Sure. Okay, so um, our very first young explorer grantee, um, Sarah McNair Landry, she uh, and her brother, Eric, uh, got a young explorer's grant to kite ski across Greenland, and they set a, a speed record at the time. Now, they grew up on Baffin Island and are the children of polar explorers, so they are really incredible. They're in their mid-20s now, but they're still off having amazing adventures. Just this year, Sarah and Eric kite skied the Inside Passage, which had, which had never been done before, and um, they're li- working on their filmmaking and bringing solar technology to their expeditions in really cool ways and also helping really reach a different audience, which is something that's important to us. And by different, I mean younger, you know, like they're speaking to their own generation of 20-somethings and helping inspire them to care about the planet. Speaking of adventure travel, what has been your greatest adventure and what will be your next adventure? A few years back, I went cycling in Northern Ireland along the coast, and it was really amazing. I mean, Northern Ireland is, is a very fascinating spot, and at that point, um, there had 
it was just after the whole foot and mouth disease epidemic, and we were actually cycling through pastoral land, so it was kind of interesting uh, to be there just after that. I mean, um, culturally and, of course, adventure from a, an adventurous perspective, it was really interesting um, to see that part of the world on a, from a bicycle. Um, and then I guess for my next adventure, I am super excited about e-season, and hopefully, and it looks like it's going to be a great uh, La Nina Powder Fest this year, so I've got a few ski trips planned. Um, to really get out there. Yay. It's hard to work in the space. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's so much going on with great video and uh, and really cool things going on, uh, particularly with skiing and snowboarding right now, that it's really hard not to want to go do that. Oh, I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah, totally. So we will have a link to the National Geographic Adventure website on this radio show page and on Marianne's guest profile page. Marianne Potts with National Geographic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Coming up, world-class explorer and host of ABC's Born to Explore, Richard Weiss takes us on an adventure journey. The Northern Territory of Australia, which is still in one of my favorite places to travel, just because um, I, I think it's a pretty place, and I think the Aboriginal culture, the oldest continuous culture in the world, so many lessons to be learned from them. Next, as World Footprints Radio continues. I'm Cheryl Ann from Spokane, and I'm a big fan of World Footprints Radio. You should listen. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Attention Shutterbugs. If you have some great travel photographs in your collection, enter them today in the World Footprints Travel Photo Contest for a chance to win great prizes. It's free and easy. All you have to do is like us on Facebook and then enter the contest page to submit up to four of your best travel photographs. Then start recruiting your family and friends to vote for you. The top vote-getters win great prizes, so hurry, because the chance to enter closes soon. Hi, I'm Aisha from Connecticut via India, and I would encourage you to listen to World Footprints. It's great radio, so do tune in. Thank you. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Richard Weiss has been called the modern-day Indiana Jones. He is a world-class explorer and host of ABC's new program, Born to Explore. As an explorer and field scientist, Richard has traveled to all seven continents. From tagging jaguars in the Yucatan jungles to discovering new life forms on Mount Kilimanjaro, Richard became the youngest president of the Explorers Club. As a journalist, he has received numerous honors, including an Emmy, a Genesis Award, an Associated Press Folio Award, and a Golden, Golden Halo Award. And the list is as long as a list of countries he's visited. Speaking of which, Richard, welcome back. I know you just returned from Morocco last night. Yes, and thank you for that uh, warm welcome. Yes, we're just in Morocco, which is an unbelievable place. I, th I think that uh, most American uh, travelers don't realize uh, how much is so close. Uh, Morocco is a very moderate uh, Islamic country. It's got such a combination of African, European,
what were you doing there? I'm assuming filming? Yeah, in fact, um, what a fantastic adventure we had. We uh, wanted to do something with the original people of Morocco, which are the Berbers. And so the Berbers are um, living in cities, but they're also still uh, fully nomadic. And so we actually went up into a village into the Atlas Mountains that a road had just been built a couple of years ago. And we were literally the first Western people ever to visit this uh, village. And this village uh, really was from the time of the Romans when uh, Jews and Berbers fled up into the Atlas Mountains to avoid uh, conflicts with everything from the Carthaginians to the Romans to who else ever was invading Morocco. Mm. You, you know, I was reading your bio earlier, and I thought, oh, my gosh, his life is so cool. And you were really born to explore, no pun intended. Uh, but you grew up with a, an adventurer, your dad. Uh, I can't believe his story. And, uh, and so I know adventure travel is really part of your DNA. Talk, talk about the early adventures uh, that you had with your dad and that your dad had on his own. Well, my father's uh, by the same name, Richard Weiss. And, um, you know, I was really lucky. I have great parents. I still do. And that my father, who was an airline pilot for Pan American, his um, particular career afforded me the ability to go on, you know, trips that maybe only millionaires or real adventurers um, would have gone on. My father himself was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. He did the equivalent mm. of what Charles Lindbergh did. So when I was 11, he took me to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and, you know, after that, various things. And uh, sort of the odd thing looking back is, you know, you, as a kid, you sort of know what you grow up with. And that was sort of my lifestyle. You know, he would say, oh, you feel like coming to Germany uh, with me uh, this evening. I'm going for the weekend or this or that. And I know that sounds like so far fetched even you know, many years later, but, you know, you, you don't perceive it as being anything out of the ordinary when you're, you know, a kid. Yeah, and, and I know your uncle also had a very strong influence on your life, and you became yeah. a scientist because of him. Yeah, my uncle, uh, Dr. Richard Lanza, uh, he's a uh, nuclear physicist at MIT, and um, I have a great deal of admiration for him. Um, his father, my grandfather, was a Sicilian immigrant who didn't even finish high school, and so here's a guy who went on to, you know, one of the toughest uh, schools in the world in physics, physicist. And um, I always admired him because if I wanted to sit down on a, you know, talk about South Park, you want to talk about the New York Yankees, you want to talk, you know, we talk about all those things. And, you know, he always had time for uh, a phone call from me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he was just such a positive influence. And, you know, again, to this day, similar to my father, I just love calling them up and, you know, we, we'll, I'll mention Morocco, and he'll launch into a whole bunch of subjects that, you know, interest or he knows about. So uh, both my father and uh, uncle to still be very positive influences in my life. How blessed uh, are you? I tell you, I mean, what came first for you, travel or science? And how did you really discover a way to commingle those interests? Well, I, you know, I, as a little kid, I was into dinosaurs. You know, I mean, I had the little toy dinosaurs and um I was also during the time of uh, the space program, so, I, you know, I used to cut out newspaper articles on all the, you know, various launches, and I'd start scrapbooks, and, um, you know, it, it's, again, uh, I'd just go outside, and we'd live close uh, to the water on Long Island, and I, I'd just, you know, go exploring, and so, um, you know, as I mentioned, my father had an interesting career, which afforded travel. I was always interested in science, and even today, you know, via, via the Internet, I find that um, a lot of people think those are uh, two things 
And I just find when I'm outside, if I run across something that I don't know about or I think about, I quickly look it up. And mm. so it's actually accelerated uh, my knowledge of many subjects that I might never know about. Well, you know, and in fact, um, your new show, Born to Explore, you know, is not only a culmination of your passions, and even before that, you know, I mentioned in the in the uh, intro that you discovered, I think, 29 new life forms on Mount Kilimanjaro? Uh, something like that. I think it was 26, but in Central Park, we actually, I was with a group that discovered 202 new life forms. In Central yeah, Park? I mean, in Central Park, yeah. These are uh, called extremophiles, which is kind of a fancy name for organisms that live in extreme environments. But, uh, you know, life is a, a continuation of continuing to learn and that uh, some things work out in life, some things don't. And, uh, you know, certainly I've had some positive things, you know, you know born to explore. Uh, but, you know, as, as any other explorer or somebody who's gone on to do something, you know, you have a lot of failures along the way. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing that I love about your show is that, you know, not it, it's more than a travel show. I mean, your show also fulfills a unique purpose and something that really resonates with us, and that's global citizenship, the fostering of global citizenship. Oh, Ta- I'm so glad you noticed that, honestly, because um, this last show we did, we were using a new sound guy for the first time, and he was so pleased that we were making an effort to show the other face of Islam in this particular show where he felt that it was, you know, it was socially redeeming what we were trying to do and show, show this culture and, you know, many of the beautiful things about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I find like, as you know, I, I look at so many adventure shows and it's so um, inwardly turned towards the host and he almost gets killed every week, which we know is probably not happening. Right. And so we, we thought, let's take some of our own personal testosterone out and, you know, take time to talk to people, people who live in different regions of the world, see what makes them happy, see what, you know, their aspirations are. And, and, you know, as an American traveling places, you know, we also feel that we have to be a goodwill ambassador, you know, that people have perceptions of America that, you know, hopefully when they meet my, myself and my crew that they have favorable impressions uh, of America. So that's part of our role, too, I guess. Talk about you know, your first season. You just finished that. It started in, uh, I believe, September. And I know you traveled, uh, you covered a lot of places from Iceland to Uganda, uh, Australia, and North Carolina, of all places. Um, not not a, uh, a, state, a state that we love, but not one that most people would think is, uh, is really sexy. Um, well, you know why I cho- chose North Carolina? It's, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, a guy named Jim Fowler, who people may know from Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, some of the um, mm-hmm. listeners, and we were discussing global warming, and I said, well, you know, if, if things are warming up, and that means certain animals are extending their range or contracting their range. And I said, probably the most emblematic animal in the U.S. of the tropics is the alligator. And we were saying, you know, where is the northernmost alligator in the world now? You know, one time it had been this place uh, called Alligator River in um, sort of along the coast of North Carolina. And now we find that they've extended their range almost to the Virginia border, which is kind of incredible. What can we expect and get excited about for the next season? Well, in the, the, the real near future, uh, you know, the Northern Territory of Australia, which is still, you know, one of my favorite places to travel, just because um, I, I think it's a pretty place, and I think the Aboriginal culture, the oldest continuous culture in the world, so many lessons to be learned from them on, on just pure survivorship to, um, to just so many different ways in which they think, and they're good stewards of the land. Uh, we're planning a trip to India, which I'm quite excited about because, um, you know, it's, it's a very complex, rich uh, culture there. 
Uh, we'll also be looking at some of the, you know, Asiatic lions that exist there. Um, you know, I can never get enough of Africa. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I, I look at the people of Africa as so creative, inventive, some of the poorest people um, in the world, which yet there's such a nobility and happiness to them that I think that we can learn some lessons from. So, you know, it, it, it sort of um, evolves along the way from personal interests, um, which I'm happy to do. Um, and there's just so much, you know, if you have any any inkling of curiosity and you've traveled, you just realize that one subject sort of begets another one. Mm-hmm. And um, even in Morocco, while I was there, uh, I just happened to be passing by some people who were still using um, traditional methods of fishing. And I thought, wow, I'd love to do a segment on that. So, I mean, that, that's pretty much how it works. I read an article in a magazine. I hear a radio show like yourself. And I think, oh, wow, I wonder what is beyond that or, or if there's something more to that. And, you know, it sort of gets us going into uh, in different directions. <laughs> so are there, are there lessons that you learned um, during that, that first season that have helped shape uh, the next season and, and seasons going yeah, forward? Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think so. You know, when we, f- I think we were more of an adventure show in concept, and I always thought that people were an interesting component. But I, I find that the cultural components of some of these places, and um, you know, you think what other lessons that we can take away. And just uh, yesterday, because uh, I just came back from Morocco, I was talking to uh, a Berber, um, a nomadic Berber, and I, I said, you know, what makes you happy? And you know, certainly brought along his uh, about his family. And he talked about uh, having a sense of humor. He said because that you know life has so many things that come along the way that it's nice to be able to laugh um, in adversity. I mean, translator explained it slightly differently. So he talks about having a sense of humor, the whole idea of family, and then he talked about having a reputation. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think all of us, in theory, want to have a good reputation, but we can sort of be. Um, led down different paths of, you know, how far can I go with this or that, my taxes, uh, maybe doing something else. And I, I think we constantly are, are eroding away at, at personal integrity. And I just thought that here are people who are so poor, I mean, really have no money, and how personal integrity and how people spoke about them was so important. Is it hard when you've traveled and you've, you've had those uh, immersion experiences and the, the, right. the cross-cultural um, you know, experiences. Is it hard to uh, adjust to, to life back home? No, not at all. Because, like last night, I came home. My three little kids were waiting at the door. They're little, and they were jumping up and down, saying "Daddy." And I rolled around on the floor with them. And um, you know, they, you know, each one wanted to show me something. And uh, I think that um, if anything, it's uh, you know, as I said, you always try to improve as a person in life. Uh, and I think it's made me a better person. And I think that. Even with television, um, people, uh, sometimes when they meet me, they say, oh, wow, you're just like you are on TV, you know, depending on whether you think I'm good or bad on TV, but <laughs> there's a, a uh, consistency of personality. I, I try not to be any different on TV than I would be in real life, mm-hmm. and, and so even though I may um, you know, take time to explain things to someone where there's a language barrier, I don't think I'm being all that much different in terms of uh, my heart or trying to convey things, whether I'm talking to a Mayan or I'm talking to, you know, somebody in New York City. 
I, I, I'm going to just dig a little deeper with, with uh, that question because I, I was just talking to somebody recently and, and he talked about, you know, uh, experiencing and, and witnessing disease and, and poverty and, you know, right. and, and the happiness. He was in Africa uh, as well, Eastern Africa, and, and, you know, and he came home and saw a uh, witnessed a, a person at the Dallas airport yelling at someone behind a coffee counter because they put whole milk in her coffee versus... Yeah, no, I, believe me, I've seen that on safaris or, or, or you know, other places too, yeah, that's, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just the societal differences and what, you know, what, what people place as, as, uh, as priorities, and, and I think for him that, that, that's always a hard adjustment to, to return to the, you know, uh, come back home. Um, well, I'll tell you, you can't always, you know, in, in, and I can give you the corollary of that too, because in some societies, if you're in a different tribe or race, they treat you like complete garbage, or... I think that uh, women don't realize in America or Western Europe how good they have it relative to many other places, which are, you know, patriarchal societies where men really run the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think just in general when you talk about uh, being fortunate, the luck of the draw, is that uh, you have choice here in America. Even somebody who considers themselves poor has choice. You know, sometimes you're born in a village where, I mean, you were just, so, you know, poof, you know, based on your where you're born and your birth, you, you may have a very difficult life. Most of the adventure travelers we know are very conscientious about the environment and very respectful of other cultures. However, I've heard of some tour companies who operate without regard to these things or even without regards to safety. What advice would you give to someone who wants to trek through Nepal or climb uh, Kilimanjaro, two things on my bucket list, um, on the best way to vet a tour guide or operator? I know that I'm I'm sort of price conscious when I'm paying for things. And so, you know, you say, well, you know, uh, for this amount, I could go up Mount Kilimanjaro. Why would I be paying this amount? I I think that reputable companies, companies that you've heard of, you know, personal recommendations from people hold in uh, high regard. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Kilimanjaro, you could go from a very basic thing where you're probably going to get sick along the way because the food's not being handled correctly. And I've climbed with somebody like Abercrombie and Kent where they're carrying everything for you. So, you know, part of it's going to be the driving mechanism, you know, going to be obviously price, like personal recommendations, um, you know, just communication um, with them, ease of it. You know, I think local knowledge is important, but local knowledge is tricky too because you're, you're always a little suspect of people in a culture that you don't completely understand. And I think that, you know, you find out that uh, there are reputable people in, in every place. Mm-hmm. But I, I would start with friends and, um, you know, read reviews and all sorts of stuff. You know, I'm more fortunate because I, I, I know so many more people sort of on the inside track of that information. Sure. So, uh, but, you know, you, you or some listener wouldn't be any different, you know, from me on how you gather information. What is the wildest adventure you've ever had? Being a father. Oh. <laughs> I have to say, I have three little kids, and I respect uh, women around the world, mothers around the world, more than anything at this point, because I think what, what um, particularly women go through raising you know, kids and pulling a house together is, is pretty neat, but... Um, you know, it's so hard for me. I have so many different categories. You could ask me one week to the next, where's the wildest place or where's the prettiest? Or, I mean, I have so many categories. Best animal experience, best vistas, most memorable.
have to have you back on the show and just kind of, and, and and we'll go down that list of uh Richard's uh Richard's picks um, yeah. with you. Now, what what has been the most transformative experience and I mean I can imagine you've had tons of them given where you've traveled and what you've done and what you're focusing on now. I think um God, Africa really transforms people. I find that um, when people get Africa in, they, in their blood, they tend to go again and again. And because there's so many, um, so intense wherever you go, I mean, whether it be the animals or the people, it's a very intense place. It smells old. It has uh, just such varying cultures. I mean, uh, Morocco being one end of it, you know, down to South Africa, you know, down to Tanzania. And I think... Um, being able to spend time among uh, local people. Mm-hmm. This uh, this past Moroccan trip was, you know, quite moving for me. And again, I just look at the political climate and how people perceive um, Islam and how I'm seeing it in, in a very moderate place is um, quite, um, you know, it, it, it's something that makes you question your own uh, prejudices or media information. It just makes you question things differently. Indigenous people, the you know the Aboriginal people of Australia, might look at them as people that kind of look dirty, or they're you know they they're not quite communicating. And then you just realize the depth of their soul and uh, so much information they have to tell you. It, it, you can't help but be uh, transformed by experiences like that. Is there one item, Richard, that you can't travel without? What is that one must-have thing? Besides my iPad, um, <laughs> I, I, I would say that um, probably hand sanitizer at this point. Uh, you know, one of the secrets of traveling is staying healthy, and I have sort of a very curious palate, and I, I find as long as I can keep my hands uh, very clean, that I, I generally have a good chance of not getting sick on any trip. So I'd say, you know, that would be my biggest travel tip to stay healthy is just washing your hands That's a great tip, actually. Born to Explore appears on ABC affiliates across the country on Saturday mornings. And check your local listings for show times. Richard Weiss is the host of Born to Explore. Thank you so much, my dear, for joining us today. Yes, you made me think. (laughs) Nearly 100 years ago, the United States received a gift of 3,000 cherry blossom trees from Japan. Coming up, we'll hear how the National Cherry Blossom Festival will launch us into spring and celebrate this historic centennial. Festival, as you said, opens March 20th, which is the first day of spring with our Pink Tie Party. Pink Tie Party has become our signature event, and it's actually a big fundraiser for the festival. Next, as World Footprints continues. Aloha! This is Danielle. Caleb. Mika. Calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. We love World Footprints Radio! Attention Shutterbugs! If you have some great travel photographs in your collection, enter them today in the World Footprints Travel Photo Contest for a chance to win great prizes. It's free and easy. All you have to do is like us on Facebook. There are two ways to access the contest through our World Footprints Media Facebook page, or you can link to the contest from our website at worldfootprints.com. You can interrupt to four of your best travel photographs. 
Voting for the best travel picks will commence after the contest entry date has closed, and winners will be announced soon after. The top vote-getters win, so hurry, because the chance to enter closes soon. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. My name is Paul from Billings, Montana and I'm on a spiritual sojourn here and I've managed to meet some pretty inspiring people. I'm Ian and Tanya of World Footprints and I hope that you guys can get out of them what I did. Thanks. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Each year, the National Cherry Blossom Festival celebrates spring in Washington, D.C. with the gift of cherry blossom trees and the enduring friendship between the people of the United States and Japan. Next year, Washington, D.C. will be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the gift of the cherry trees from Tokyo, Japan. To commemorate this milestone, the National Cherry Blossom Festival will be extended to an epic five-week spectacular. Dinah Mayhew is president of the National Cherry Blossom Festival, and she joins us to tell us what's in store for 2012. Diana, our cherry blossom trees are really considered a national treasure, aren't they? Absolutely. And, you know, they're, they're very hardy trees. That's one thing that, that has stunned me uh, about these trees. They've survived uh, a lot of natural disasters that our buildings haven't. Uh, the earthquake that we had earlier this year, Hurricane Irene, uh, these, these trees are very, very hardy. Yes, we're, we're very lucky. And, and the main uh, people, the organization that really cares for these trees is the National, Cherry, uh, National, excuse me, National Park Service. They care for the trees every single day, uh, 365 days a year. So that is one of the main reasons that these trees are in great condition. What inspired this gift from the Japanese 100 years ago? There are uh, several people that were involved in this gift. Uh, Helen Taft, First Lady Helen Taft, really, she had traveled to Japan and just loved these trees. Um, Eliza Sidmore was a photographer at that time, back with National Geographic. She also saw these trees and fell in love with them. Uh, several other corporate citizens, a, a pharmacist, Dr. Takamani, uh, Jokichi Takamani, was, who was the first president of Daiichi Sankyo, actually uh, there's, there's indications that he helped fund the trees and encourage this gift. So it was coming from several different ends. And they worked together and actually got these beautiful over 3,000 trees sent in 1912. Mm. The festival itself, um, although next year won't be a centennial, the, the festival will be celebrating a centennial in um, a few years from now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the festival? The first festival actually took place in 1927. It starts with 
school children were a big part of it, replanting trees as well as waterfront events. And it was it was a couple-day event and a celebration. And at that time, also First Lady uh, Wilson was involved in, she was a part of it. There's a, there's a huge history of First Ladies being involved with different activities. And many, many, many years now, First Ladies have have served as the honorary chairs of the of the National Cherry Blossom Festival. Will First Lady Michelle Obama be serving as a um, honorary chair next yes, year? Yes, that is confirmed that she is. Excellent. Now, you know, I've been to uh, several festival events, and I can say personally that the execution of the festival takes a Herculean effort. You know, not only are you managing events for the nearly one million people who travel to the festival each year, um, now you're extending the festival from two weeks to five weeks. Um, I know it starts March 20th through April 27th, 2012. How do you plan to manage this uh, longer, uh, longer event and all the activities that will take place? Well, we have, we have a, a wonderful staff, and the staff has expanded, as you can imagine, for this coming celebration. It also takes thousands of people, you know, over a 1,000 volunteers that help us throughout the festival in general and will be on board and have actually started a lot earlier this year to be on board with us for the five weeks. We want to make sure that our visitors and the residents here that enjoy the festival each year, their expectations are, are not just met but goes beyond their expectation, and, and they are wowed um, not only by the wonderful, beautiful, blooming trees, but knowing that the festival is more than just the trees as it expands to the five weeks. There are events, signature events that the festival puts on every year as well as just from the Tidal Basin throughout the entire city of Washington. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned volunteers, and I know that you started working with the festival uh, many years ago as a volunteer. Talk about the, the critical role that volunteers play in the operation of the festival. Well, our board of directors, as you said, this was all volunteer or organization until about 10 years ago, and the um, the board is an all-volunteer board, and they work very hard. Most of them have full-time jobs, and this is sort of their second job. So you really have to be devoted to it. Um, but the, the parade, for instance, has over 500 volunteers just for that one particular day, being the marshals down the street, working with the performing groups, carrying the balloons, the giant helium balloons down the parade. So, and it, people just enjoy it. Many people come back year after year and are engaged and, and are a very strong part of, of the culture of the festival. How, how can people volunteer, and do you take, you know, because the festival attracts an international audience, do you accept uh, applications for volunteers from people who are coming from abroad? As long as they have the, the timing available to participate, if someone's coming and they want to experience it, and they want one particular uh, activity, for instance, if it is just carrying the balloon down the street, that that's a possibility. Uh, what they would do is go to our website, nationalcherryblossomfestival.org, and click on um, About Us, which takes you to our volunteer page. And there is instructions about what's available and and uh, what what the needs are, the timing, and the and the guidelines. So, okay, 2012, we're planning for the centennial, um, and it's a five-week spectacular. What will we see during this five-week period? 
Well, the festival, as you said, opens March 20th, which is the first day of spring with our Pink Tie Party. Pink Tie Party has become our signature event. It's actually a big fundraiser for the festival. Most of our events are free and open to the public, so there is a couple events that we do do to help raise funds to to um, to support and fund the entire five weeks. Our signature events include Family Day at the National Building Museum. That's opening weekend of March 24th and 25th. And as well as opening ceremony will be expanded this year to the Washington Convention Center, Walter E. Washington Convention Center on Sunday, March 25th. Um, the tickets will be, it will be ticketed, it will be free and open to the public. And on our website in the next few weeks, there will be directions of actually how to get those tickets. Uh, but it will be a, a fantastic show. We continue through the week with fireworks at the Southwest Waterfront, as well as um, the next weekend, the parade, the National Cherry Blossom Festival Parade down Constitution Avenue Saturday, April 14th, followed by Japan America Society's Street Festival. I'm just curious. You've been with the festival for a long time. As I mentioned, you started off as a volunteer before assuming um, your, your current position uh, I think first you were executive director and, and assumed uh, the presidential um, uh, um, role. How has the festival changed over the years from the time that you've been involved with it? With full-time staff, we are able to provide some consistency, build programs, build programs that are sponsorable. You know, we've tied in lots and lots of, of financial support, which is which is very important. Unfortunately, each year we start from scratch to raise funds. Uh, so we work with our sponsors and supporters uh, to help us elevate these events and to bring spectacular performances. So that has been a big, big difference that we're able to, again, more staff and consistent being able to execute sponsorships. Um, so that's, that's a key part of it. The programming, a lot more expertise, uh, has been brought on board. Again, as the volunteers are very important, but the professional expertise in, do, in taking these events to some of the, the, the key levels, marketing and, and promotion of the events, tr communicating not just for those couple weeks, but all throughout the year about the, the National Cherry Blossom Festival, working with media partners. All of these things, the programs take time and people that uh, can't just do it on the side or as a hobby. It really needs to be very full-time devoted. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that struck me uh, when I first moved to this area and attended some festival events is that the festival itself is not does not just appeal to the American communities and Japanese communities. I mean, you've really gone beyond. You, your, your reach uh, is, is much more global and cross-cultural. Talk about how the festival itself inspires and cultivates cross-cultural understanding. Well, of course, Japan is at the heart of the festival, and it started with a gift, a gift of friendship from one country to the other. So I think that sets a great foundation to continue that message with countries across the world. And there's a lot of cultural performances that we do, multicultural performances and art exhibits and so the content that we feature helps promote that as well. We have a, a big focus on the, the youth, excuse me, <clears throat> the youth and education, international uh, culture and friendship, 
as well as learning about the environment. All these things attract many people from all over the country. We actually have a program right now in Japan with the Girl Scouts. We have a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts are celebrating 100-year anniversary in 2012. We've worked together in the U.S. developing a patch, and we have a goodwill ambassador of one of ours in Japan right now working with with girls to earn that patch. Mm. You also have a variety of ways listeners can support the National Cherry Blossom Festival throughout the year, including a tree planting program. Talk about that and some of your other supporter initiatives. We work with Arbor Day Foundation um, promoting planting of trees across the country. And you can actually go to our website and purchase a cherry tree for your own home, adding a little bit of what's at the beautiful title basin right in their front or backyard. And the proceeds do go to benefit um, the festival. And again, we are a nonprofit 501c3. We've, we've had individual contributions, again, corporate sponsorships, or just attending a, uh, you know, our few fundraising events that, that helps year-round. I mean, in, and as an environmentalist, uh, an environment-focused uh, show, uh, you know, having uh, being able to plant a tree uh, does so much. It has so, such a wonderful positive impact for the environment uh, as well. One of our key focus programs year-round and every year, not just for the centennial, but of course with the centennial we're trying to to really expand it. it our goal for the next two years is to plant 1,000 new cherry trees, working with the schools, working with the communities and supporters. And um, that is definitely one of our goals, to continue that circle of giving. 1,000 cherry trees in the D.C. area or nationwide? Well, the goal is, is the D.C. area, but we have already started nationwide campaign in addition to that with some of our supporters. Daiichi Sankyo is the chair of the 2012 festival, and they actually planted 140 cherry trees in New Jersey uh, just last month. Oh, my goodness. That's wonderful, and they're, such, they're so beautiful. If no one has uh, come to D.C. during Cherry Blossom Festival to see the cherry blossoms in bloom. Um, we both encourage uh, you two to travel here, and I know Diana, you have on on the uh, on your website a um, list of hotel partners and um, ways to help people uh, plan their travel uh, logistics. Um, a lot of good resources on your website, uh, which we do have a link uh, on our on the radio show of. Um, the radio show page, and uh, as well as Diana's uh, guest profile page. We have a link to the National Cherry Blossom Festival. A lot of good resources there. Uh, Diana Mayhew is president of the National Cherry Blossom Festival. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, and we welcome everyone to come to Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today. And remember, if you have some great travel photos in your collection, make sure you enter them in the World Footprints Travel Photo Contest. You can enter from our website page or from the link on our website at worldfootprints.com. If you want more of World Footprints Radio and everything else we have to offer, like travel deals and news, follow us, friend us, and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best. 
the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.